Listeners, readers, I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best of books. We end up with a more rich appreciation of the text at hand while also learning to read, let's just admit it, a little bit better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for anyone out there who doesn't traffic in rare books, Foxed Page might sound like something of a mystery. Foxing is just those little tan spots that you sometimes see on the pages of really old, beloved books. And hey, if you want to, head to thefoxpage.com for features like Two Cents, where I predict in about five minutes whether or not you should or should not read a given book. You'll find Booked, which are itineraries, suggestions of things you might want to read before or during vacations to different places around the globe, and Memory Lane, which are nostalgic favorites, no rereading required, where I will do 45-minute deep dives into old favorites like Harriet the Spy and picture books like Where Did I Come From? But for today, we're diving into Claire Keegan's insanely great novella, Foster. As always, a tip or two before we dive in. The lecture will be delivered today in three parts, the first of which will cover why we should read this book, a few biographical points about Claire Keegan. We'll dive into the cover, the title, and the first uh, paragraphs of the novel, the novella. And then I'll give a special a little analysis on the names. In part two, we'll be talking about the mystery that is at the heart of this, uh, of this incredible novel. It's a very tense little piece of literature. And when we do that, we'll be looking at the way that the tension builds and the mystery becomes more and more intriguing because of the narrative stance. We have a child narrator here, and it is uh, just an absolutely stunning masterclass in how to get the most out of a, um, you know, a, a narrator who's somewhere between seven and nine uh, years old. In the last of the three chunks, we will be talking about the incredible use of figurative language in the novella. So she is just, I mean, there is not a detail in this book that is not working over time. Figurative language is simply language that says more than just what it means literally on the page. We'll be talking about symbolism, personification, foreshadowing, all of those terms that you learned in sophomore English, which in this case are used incredibly well and to very important effect. And then of course, as always, at the end of the third chunk, we'll be looking at the close of the novel. Okay, time to dive in. So the first question is, why would I be spending 90 minutes talking to you about this? And why, in fact, would you be spending the three hours? I mean, what a gift. This book for three hours um, of your life. I mean, it, this is just an absolute gem of, of a way to spend a morning. I did, in fact, read it all in one sitting. Not only is it short, but there is a lot of white space on these pages. I mean, this is nice big font with a lot of space between uh, all the lines. So you'll just be able to whip right through it. I um, actually bought these. They're two. They're sort of companion pieces, which I'll explain in a minute. Two novels by Claire Keegan. They're so attractive visually that I'm sure you've seen them at the checkout stand at your local uh, local bookstore because they're just such uh, gems. And they, in fact, were books that I gave to several people at Christmas time. I bought them back in the fall. And honestly, I just had too many books about Ireland that I had been including 
in the lectures. And I, I thought I cannot do what, another Irish novel. And then I just couldn't resist. I could not resist. I sat down, I read it in one morning and um, I bumped the other things I was going to talk about and dove back into Ireland because this book is such an incredible piece of prose. There was lots of word of mouth too. I kept hearing from all sorts of readers in my orbit um, about how it was a book that they had read recently that just absolutely crushed them. I also was interested in the fact that it has just been recently adopted into the Irish school curriculum in order to graduate from some level of school. And I would be interested to know if this is like, you know, a high school book or, or even younger. Um, it, it, it seems like something, I mean, as a graduate, student, a former graduate student, um, you know, in a doctoral program, this is something that we would look at, certainly. It's also something that I think that you could read. I mean, would I want to read this to a very young child? I am not sure. I found it incredibly tense and haunting. So, you know, I'm hoping maybe they're reading it in maybe late middle school, their equivalent of that, or in high school. But I'm interested in the idea of it being kind of a, um, a signal novel, one that is really getting to the essence of what it is to be Irish and something that uh, the, the Irish authorities feel like everyone in the country needs to read. Quick little biography about Claire Keegan. So um, she was born in 1968. She's one year older than I am. She was born in County Wicklow, Ireland. All I know is she's the youngest of a very large Catholic, Irish Catholic family. I don't know anything more than that. Uh, she, when she was 17, she went to New Orleans and studied there. And at Loyola University, she got a degree reading English. Uh, she then got an MA at uh, the University of Wales and went on to get her uh, another master's in philosophy at Trinity College in Dublin. So um, she was given all sorts of acclaim for her various different pieces of fiction. She won the Rooney Prize in 2000 and the Davy Byrne Award um, in 2009. It says in the back of the book that that's like the most uh, lucrative, but I wonder if it's maybe the most lucrative prize in Ireland, because I'm thinking it probably doesn't top a MacArthur, but maybe a MacArthur is like a, that whole genius grant. Maybe it's more than just for writers. Um, I would tell you that I'm going to get back to you with that information, but I do not have time to spare. So she won these very prestigious awards. And then in 2022, her book, um, oh my gosh, I don't have the title of it. Oh yes, it's right here. Uh, the title is Small Things Like These, which I have not read yet, but um, that was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2022. So when that happened, they issued these incredibly, um, the Americans finally got hip to how amazing Claire Keegan is and um, went ahead and issued uh, these little tandem. I wish I had the other one with me. It's gorgeous. It's almost exactly the same, but it's a different, <laughs> it's almost exactly the same, but different. It's greens and blacks and whites. Uh, and it's just like, I mean, there are just these delectable little pieces of, of writing in very beautiful little packages. And I think it's very smart that they brought them out together. And in fact, you for those of you who have read this volume, you know that in the end, they have that little teaser of, um, why can't I remember this? I keep wanting to say the things they carried, which is that Tim O'Brien book. Um, small things like these, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I, but I like it as a companion piece. We have the, the little intro to it in the back here because this is so short that it really does leave you sort of hungry for more. So uh, we are going to now dive in to 
I've already given you like a hard sell here on the cover art, but we're going to dive in a little bit more thoroughly into the significance of some of these things. So um, I think it's very telling and I always have to offer this sort of caveat that writers have generally not a ton of control over the title of their book and they definitely don't have control over the cover art of their books um in my experience in my experience of the one book they they run things by you as kind of a perfunctory like how does this sound to you but but really it is left to the marketing people which in most cases is probably a very good idea i think most writers are probably not great judges of visual art um I mean, is that true? I don't know. I just, I think, you know, why not let the the experts do their jobs? But I find this incredibly compelling for a number of different reasons. One is that we have this kind of, this black and white color scheme, which is really important. So we're gonna see this black and white motif play out through the entire book. It's really one of the sort of dominating um, motifs that appear in the work. So you have this black and white, and then you have these, these various tones of blue, um, which, you know, we have a lot of connotations about blue and things being blue and blueness, um, meaning things being kind of depressed and gloomy. So so there is this idea of of this kind of gloominess, this kind of brooding blue. We also have these, these giant mountains in the back here that are very, um, you know, kind of ominous and, and uh, you know, foreboding. And the fact that we have this silhouette, the fact that things are sort of flattened, I think really does say a lot about the prose that we can expect. I like it. Um, well, sometimes I like it and sometimes I really don't. In this case, I really like that they have a depiction here that's pretty close to the description that the young narrator tells us. Um, it is, the, she, she describes it as a long white house. So I, I like this idea of, of, of this as echoing that, but I also like the way that this long white house in the in the story, it has the weeping willows, which are not quite captured in this kind of blocky tree here. Um, but you have this idea of these dark, we have these dark windows and these dark doors, and and it's sort of it's somewhat childlike, but also beautiful. But that that darkness against the white is very foreboding. We're going to look at a um, a passage in the third part that describes drive walking by houses. Um, with all the windows and doors ajar in a way that's very spooky. So this is kind of alluding to this, this darkness that is happening inside this house that she is about to enter. Um, and you also, you have all of these layers, you have this kind of stratification, which I think really speaks very eloquently to all of the secrets and all of the mystery. So this is an, a, a book where we do not end up with a lot of answers, but we have a lot, a lot, a lot of, of insinuation and a lot of secrets being referred to and a lot of protesting too much about not having secrets. So I love these these layers and the idea of things being um, submerged and the idea of things sort of covering other things up. I also really like the wateriness of it. Water is a really large player in this book in lots of ways. So this is just an absolutely incredible, um, you know, well, I can't think of a better example of cover art that really, really does uh, a lot for a piece of literature. I also love the title. I just, I think it's so good. So Foster, um, it's an interesting thing. My very first thought, not knowing anything about the book, was that we were referring to a name. It seems like maybe the name of a person. Um, 
I'm not sure why. I, I, I don't I don't know why. Maybe because we expect there to be sort of a main character at the center of any work. So you, at first you have this idea that that it's maybe somebody's last name. At least that occurred to me. And then it becomes sort of clear that this is a book about a, a, a couple who foster a young child. So this idea of fostering something um, is, is very important. It's sort of central. And I actually love the fact that this doesn't come up. Um, foster is not a word that appears in the novel, which is actually pretty unusual. And it's, it's very sort of haunting here. It's kind of speaking to this idea of all that goes unsaid throughout the novel itself. The idea of foster also to me, um, because it functions both as a verb and as a noun, you know, the idea of being a foster parent or a foster child, but the idea of fostering something, that verb has a certain connotation of sort of nurturing and um, and and caring for something and bringing it along and taking um, you know taking interest in something and 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 protecting it. So I love the idea of a, the verb form of it. Fostering something feels very uh, positive, but at least as an American, my sense of like foster homes and foster children is it's a very difficult thing. I mean, it presupposes that this the, the child at the center of a foster situation has no family who will take that child in. I mean, sort of by definition, uh, that is what a foster child is. So so it really is this kind of both, it's this word that is very bivalent. It's very, um, it, it's very sort of black and white. You know, it's either that you're the verb form, you're fostering something and nurturing it, or that you are the foster thing and that you are totally bereft of, of any sort of um, family, anyone at all, who might be able to take you in. So uh, it, it, I love I love the meanings behind it. I also love the the fact that foster there's a connotation there, like an allusion to the idea of frost, um, and maybe that's because of the black and the white and the blue. But I like that idea of of how it sounds a bit like frost. It's actually almost an anagram of frost. I also like the idea of it sounding a little bit like foist. There's a certain um, you know again switch not switch but we add one letter, take out two, and we've got foist. Um, so, so there's this idea of kind of this, um, a, a multivalence to the word. We've got the, really the bivalence of its meaning, but then we have this, these sort of connotations floating around it that I really love. So I also love the brevity. I think it's just excellent. To, it's just this one word that really is saying a lot. And and it also is, um, it, it's speaking to the brevity and kind of the, 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 the pithiness, the terse nature of the work itself. Uh, okay, so, oh, also I have here, I have in my notes here, I just was struck by my own notes, um, this idea of the mystery that is inherent in the book. So in this case, um, you know, you have this question of like, who who is at the center of this fostering? And then again, because it, it, it sort of denotes a child who is, you know, who has no family or is being forced to leave their family for a certain uh, for a certain reason, a bunch of mystery sort of springs out of this idea. You know, why is this child with these new people? How is it going to go? What is bringing the people to be the foster parents in the first place? So it's it's sort of fraught with this sense of of, of mystery. Okay, and then we're gonna we're gonna actually open the book fifteen minutes into the um, into the lecture. So I it's interesting to me. So you can see right here it was uh, published in two thousand ten. 
And then again, in uh, 2022, again, because of this very smart thing uh, on the part of the uh, publishing community, where they brought both of the books out in these uh, delectable editions, because they really do pair well, I think they pair well, I haven't read the other one yet. Um, okay, and then we have the dedication over here. It is for Ida Marcus and in memory of David Marcus. Um, you guys all know that I'm a bit of a literary groupie, a bit of a literary sleuth, and I can tell you that David Marcus was an author. He was born in 1924. He is dead. He was a huge champion of Irish writing. So I think that um, people forget that Ireland, you know, there is an Irish language. There is Gaelic, which is Irish. Um, when when people think of Irish, I think they just think it's like a, an accented type of English. But in fact, Irish is that crazy language with all those weird accents and all those crazy combinations of vowels and crazy combinations of, of uh, consonants and even capital letters, you know, in the middle of words, that sort of thing. It's, it's a language that's actually very, very sort of foreign sounding. We're not supposed to say foreign language anymore. Now we say world language. It is a world language that feels very different from English. So um, there, there was a movement at the end of the late 19th century to sort of bring back Irish as like this cultural phenomenon and to, to really focus on the Irish experience because up until you know the late 19th century, there was a real push toward um, colonization and toward assimilation and toward essentially turning Ireland into a little satellite of England. So this idea of, of um, really wanting to push the Irish experience and, and sort of the idea of, of resuscitating the Irish language a bit was something that was very important uh, at the end of 19th and early 20th century. James Joyce, interestingly, was not a fan of this. He really was like, let's just be English. I'm gonna move to Paris. I'm gonna write only about Dublin, but I'm only going to do it in, uh, in Europe. So it's interesting to see on which side of this question of the Irish revival different writers fall on. David Marcus, who was born in 1924, was very much a, a champion of uh, of championing, championing the Irish language and Irish writers. So he in fact headed the Irish press uh, and he brought out incredible writers like Anne Enright, who is one of my very favorites, our Claire Kagan here, um, Colin Toy, uh, Col sorry, Colm Toybean, uh, and a bunch of other uh, names that were less familiar to me, but, but still just incredibly um, important writers in this already rich pantheon of Irish writers. Okay, so she and Ida Marcus is um, is his wife, but also was a teacher. So I think that um, you know I like the idea here of of uh, of our very talented Claire Keegan as really um, thanking the people who were promoting her so well, and you get the sense because she's thanking both of them. Um, I'm going to really make a little stretch here that there's a certain sort of um, not that she wanted them to be her foster parents, but there's a sense of, of, of calling out this couple who were not, in fact, her parents uh, to sort of calling them out together. And in fact, I, um, uh, Ida's name is Ida Daly, but she calls her by her uh, her married name in this case. So there is a sense of, of calling out to, to a couple who are not her parents which um, is maybe my own little fantasy about the fact that she views them as a sort of foster parenting sort of couple. I don't have any idea how she feels about her own parents, but this is me just, just riffing. Okay, now we are going to finally look at pages one and two. We're gonna look at the first, uh, the first couple of, well, I guess it's just the first paragraph, the first paragraph of the book.
Okay. Early on a Sunday, after first mass in Clonagall, my father, instead of taking me home, drives deep into Wexford towards the coast where my mother's people came from. Okay, wow, a lot to unpack already. So early on a Sunday, so you have this idea of, um, of, of uh, being very tied to the Catholic mass, being very tied to this idea of, uh, of, of the week. You know how our weeks start on Sunday and then, is that right? Yes, they start on Sunday and then we go through. And this idea, it's very sort of, in my mind, it's very sort of ecclesiastical. It's very religious, this idea of Sunday as being, you know, the Sabbath and the first day. And um, it, it, so there is this idea of starting with a certain amount of reverence. And in fact, when she says after first mass in Clonagall, so the after first mass, it, it presupposes that we understand that she is Catholic and that there is first mass and then there's gonna be some sort of second mass. Um, I think sometimes there's also mass on Saturday night. I mean, I think you can go to mass like, I don't know, three, four times a day from what I understand uh, from my, well, they're not they're not really my generation. This is a generation before me of Irish Catholic people. Um, the, the, you know, mass can be kind of a full-time job. So this is someone who is steeped in at least the ritual of Catholicism, which is very important. Um, I think there is a shadow of Catholicism over the entire book. Lots of shame, lots of guilt, uh, lots of not saying things that maybe should be said. Lots of kind of, um, you know, uh, a certain reverence maybe for things that are um, that are not spoken. Okay, so and then uh, we have Clonagall. So right away we are being situated in Ireland. Those of you who want to tune in to the series of uh, images that I will have at the end, I have a map of Ireland. Clonagall is, it's if you're in Dublin, kind of in the center of Ireland on the coast there, right across from England, and you go south a bit, kind of, what is that, southwest? Clonagall is a little bit um, in from the coast, and then um, when they're driving out toward where she will be, they're driving out to the coast. We go past Carnew and past a couple of other places. So we're right in the center of Ireland, which I think is important just in the sense of this being, it, it's not a regional novel about the North. It's not about Belfast. It's not Derry. It's not, um, it's not so much about the division between the North and the South. We're squarely in the center of Ireland. Okay, she's with her father which it's interesting, um, the absence of the mother right from the start is very, very important. So we've talked a lot in these seminars about the fact, um, this is kind of that Disney phenomenon, that you have to get rid of a mother. You have to sort of, it's like a Bambi thing or Dumbo thing. You have to kill the mother in some way, get her out of the picture, because if you have a mother in any given story, Generally speaking, she's going to kind of keep the lid on stuff. You know, she's going to make sure that not too much mayhem ensues and that no one is in really grave danger. We do have a maternal figure here. And in fact, at some point, she does do something heroic. I'm not going to have any spoilers. Um, she, of course, does it off scene, like off the page. And actually, I'm not even sure it's her. Actually, I'm speaking out of turn here. We don't know who is the hero which is actually also another part of the mystery of this novel. But we, we have, at the very least, we have the absence of the mother of this child, and we have the father instead. And um, this father is, there is a quite a bit of suspicion that kind of hangs about this man. He's always rushing off. He's leaving his daughter. He's a gambler. He does not seem fiscally responsible. He lost their prize heifer. 
Um, he is someone who uh, is, is sort of taciturn and inward and um, can be seen in many ways as a very subtle threat. So this is a man who's who's driving her. He's literally sort of, um, you know, casting her fate by driving her in this car uh, and he's not taking her home. And this idea of driving deep into Wexford, um, it, it's like a fairy tale. It's it's very Hansel and Gretel. You know, he's driving her deep into the woods. You know, there's this sense of um, of of driving deep somewhere and not being able to find your way back. Um, okay, into Wexford toward the coast where my mother's people came from. So it's interesting to me, um, we don't have quite enough time to dive deep into this, but the novel is told largely in present tense. And in some ways that's because it's narrated by a child, uh, which we're gonna get to in just a minute, But and we'll dive deeply into that in the second installment. But this idea of the present tense of the novel as being very consistent. So this is the way that we tell stories. It's certainly the way that a child might tell the story. They're narrating it as if it were happening in real time. But then it's this place where her mother's people came from. So there's this very interesting division here. It's not, it's where my mother's people come from. There's a there's a sense that she does not have any connection with these people, that she's, uh, you know, she's she's uh, divided from them. She doesn't have access to them. It's they, her mother's people came from there a long time ago, but essentially she does not, this is not a familiar sort of thing uh, that she is heading back to. It's a very subtle, thing, but I love it when an author is able to use literally just a simple grammatical tense in a very simple word and 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 really, you know, convey to us readers that this is a child who is deeply divided from the past and from her forebears and certainly from her extended family. It is a hot day, bright, with patches of shade and greenish sudden light along the road. So I mentioned this before a little bit, this idea of um, of light and dark. Throughout the whole entire novel, there is lots and lots of this light and dark. There's a lot of shadow and brightness. Um, at times she is blinded, like when she's taking a bath or when she's stepping into the sunlight, the light is blinding. Um, th there's a lot of discussion of the sun setting and the sun rising. A lot of stuff, there's some stuff about the moon, which is important because the moon often symbolizes women. There's a lot of darkness and lightness. And as um, we are discussing, this the entire text you want to keep in mind this idea of of this child is at a stage developmentally where thinking is very black and white there is this sense of um you know not being able to see a lot of nuance and she's just so we assume because of a bunch of different things that she's maybe nine tomorrow not tomorrow in the next section i will be talking a little bit more about why i think she might be slightly older but She's sort of um, at the end of childhood heading toward, you know, her preteen years. But but there is this sense of childlike, um, you know, things are either good or bad. People are either good or evil. So this, this black and white thinking, this light and dark thinking really underscores that in an important way. Okay. Um, and it's interesting, too, that the light is greenish. There's this idea her, of her also as both heading toward a place that will be nurturing to her, which it is, you know, this this place where she is fostered is in fact very nurturing to her. But the, the light being greenish, there's a sense of not being able to see clearly, but also this idea of growth and fecundity and and um and and sort of this burgeoning youth that she is about to experience during this summer. 
We passed through the village of Shillelagh, where my father lost our, sh our red shorthorn in a game of 45, and on past the mart in Carnu, where the man who won the heifer sold her shortly afterwards. Okay, so Shillelagh, importantly, a Shillelagh is a club. It's like a, it's like a weapon, like a, like a, like a Neanderthal kind of, you know, thing that you would hit someone with. So this, this idea of violence is, is already prefigured. Um, we have that. And then Carnu, um, there is this idea of vehicles being important. It's interesting. This was also something we just saw in another Irish, um, in another Irish novel that we were looking at the importance of cars. And so, so this idea of progress, you know, at one point, She's in the car. It is 1981, which we find out later because uh, there are some hunger strikers on the news and there's television. So it's 1981. And yet this little girl is wondering if they're going to have indoor plumbing. We find out that in her house, they don't have a lot of hot water. They keep buckets of water under the sink. So, so it's 1981 and yet there is this timelessness to the story. And so this idea of car new, um, to my mind, is sort of underscoring the idea of, of of progress, you know, and is progress progress? And this idea of a car as being the vehicle that is going to carry her to her fate, which at this point is seeming potentially a little, a little fraught. And then of course, her father not only lost their heifer in, um, in a card game, so 45 is a card game, uh, but then that man sold the cow right away. So very importantly, a heifer is a young female cow. And, you know, in, it's very valuable here because we, you know, this is the, the livelihood of this man, her father. So you have this sense of, of the importance of this young female cow. And yet it is something that is sort of bartered. It's just something that is traded for money. Um, and it, it's not, uh, it, you know, it, it's something that's, it's a commodity. So I think we are meant to read very much like she, in fact, or this young girl is is also being sort of traded and being shunted off and being um, foisted on someone else. Okay. My father throws his hat on the passenger seat, winds down the window and smokes. Okay. Here I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb. So we, um, this is a book again that does incredible work with figurative language. In this case, um, my father throws his hat on the passenger seat. A hat is a long-standing, it's, it's a symbol of authority, certainly, but it is a long-standing literary symbol of both the penis and the vagina. So this is very Freudian and you can, um, you know, hem and haw and, and, you know, dismiss all of Freud. I, in fact, uh, you know, there is a lot that I don't want to take, but I mean, there's a lot that I can leave, but there is also a lot that I think um, makes some sense. So not only do we have him taking off his hat, so it, it's it's a penis and a vagina because, you know, it's shaped like something phallic, but it also is empty. You know, you have like a like a sort of a vaginal um, shape to the hat. But so he takes off his hat and he um, he passes it or he throws it onto the passenger seat. So there's a lot happening here. First of all, there's no one else in the passenger seat. Her mother is not with them to drop her off in her new home. Um, and this idea of his sexuality, I mean, I think we're meant to wonder about it and we are not meant to conclude much. So he, he's taking off the hat and throwing it onto the passenger seat. She's in the back seat. So we don't know what to make of this symbol of sort of what he's doing with this phallic symbol. And yet I have this sense of him, um, you know, being kind of expansive with it and throwing it onto a passenger seat. Um, he's not like doing something super like over the top with it. 
But there is this kind of um, phallic thing that in a book that is this spare and that has so many few details, you really need to pay attention to those details. He then rolls down the window and smokes cigars and cigarettes, famously also being phallic symbols. So um, there's a lot of sort of sexual tension that is raised here. Uh, I think you can dismiss it, but I also think that we are um, you know, as the as the text moves along, things are getting creepier and creepier. And this is part of the reason. I mean, there's part of this idea of, um, you know, simply the fact that they're not communicating very much, but also these details are here for a reason. Okay, and then, I shake out the plaits out of my hair and lie flat on the back seat, looking up through the rear window. In places, there's a bare blue sky. In places, the blue is chalked over with clouds, but mostly it is a heady mixture of sky and trees scratched over by ESB wires across which every now and then small brownish flocks of vanishing birds race. So we have the plaits in her hair. A little bit later, she remembers the cold teeth of the steel comb and her mother's hands kind of running this metal comb against her head and her mother very firmly and very tightly forming these plaits, these braids that she's wearing. And as her mother is doing that, is sort of tightening and controlling her and, and sort of getting her in line and taming her, um, she is sitting in her mother's lap and, and feels very prominently the presence of the next baby. She's literally being pushed off of her mother's lap by this pregnancy, by this taut baby. Um, it, it's a very eerie, sort of creepy scene with the mother. It's very, you know, again, these steel teeth kind of biting into her head and the mother really pulling hard on her hair. So this is significant because she's here, she's letting her hair, she's letting her hair down. She's, you know, she's feeling much more free uh, in a way that that is is good. I mean, it's a way that tells us that she's escaping from a situation that is not entirely comfortable for her. Then of course we have this alternating um, between the blue sky and the clouds, again, that kind of black and white kind of thinking. Um, and then, and the, and the ESB wires are, ESB is the, it's the energy company. It was, um, I have in my notes here that it was formed in 1927, if you were wondering. Uh, and then very importantly, we have the smallish brown flocks of vanishing birds. So there's lots and lots of animal symbolism in this book. And I love the fact that it's at times, you know, she talks about Frisian cattle or a shorthorn, but lots of times it's just, you know, the cow, the bird, the dog, um, the cat. These are, these are, it's, it's very sort of like farmer in the dell kind of a thing. It's a very young child describing very simple animals in very simple childlike terms. So these these birds, but it's it's flocks of birds. So there's just this very important sense of you know birds of a feather flocking together, flocks of birds as being kind of families of birds. But importantly, the birds are vanishing. So there's this idea of her family vanishing. There's also a an idea of families as being just sort of fleeting. You know that they're always vanishing, and then also um, the fact that they race. And the fact that this first, um, the first paragraph here ends with the word race, the last word of a paragraph, especially the first one in a book is always very important. So the idea of these birds racing um, foreshadows, this is another type of figurative language, foreshadows the, um, the races that she will be doing out to the mailbox and back. So you have um, this sense of this race as being important. And of course, it's metaphorical. She's racing away from a lot of things and she's also racing toward things. 
And in fact, um, it sets us up very, very nicely, this idea of race at the very beginning, um, this kind of the birds racing, it sets us up very beautifully for the very, very last part, the closing part of the novel. And um, before I close today, I wanna just walk you very quickly through the names in this novel. So they're not that many. Um, we have, I'm looking for my notes. So John and Mary, are the um, her mother and her father. And the names are not prominent. These are names that are very subtly sort of thrown away here and there. You have to be paying attention. Mary, obviously being the virgin and also the mother of Jesus. Uh, there, there is this setup between um, the virgin and the whore, which we always need to be thinking about. And this Mary, her mother, who has, I think by my count, there are, you know, we have this sister, we have her younger sisters, plural, so at, at least two, then we have a baby boy, and then we also have um, a, a, the baby boy who was born, a toddler boy and a baby, so at least five children, maybe more sisters than that. So this Mary is this, I mean, and she's clearly, you know, procreating with, with John. So she's kind of the opposite of the Virgin Mary who has the only, you know, has only the one holy child. This is a woman who cannot get away from her children and in fact needs to be sending them away because she's so overwhelmed. So I, I'm reading the name Mary with lots and lots of irony. It's almost like a send up of, of you know, holy Mary. Um, and, and of course, you know, the, 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 the Holy Marys are like the, the idea of Mary in the Catholic world cannot be overstated. Then we have John, which means graced by God, which I think is also a bit ironic. I mean, this father figure, John, not a great dude. I mean, there is not a lot recommending him, but he um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he is very faithful to his friend Daniel who becomes a future king. And John in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is one of the most sort of revered person. He's, he's an apostle, apostle, he's an apostle. He's one of, you know, Jesus's like, you know, gang. And he also um, is John the Baptist. He's a very important and very sort of revered and positive person. Again, I am reading that here as um, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of an ironic statement. Also, I think, um, I don't, this is a very wide interpretation. What I'm talking about here is he would be a John, which, or a trick, you know, that a, that a sex worker might sort of um, take advantage of him. I don't think Claire Keegan is really leaning hard into that, but if we're going to dig up all of our different, um, uh, you know, dig up one more, it also stands for toilet. I don't know why people call it the John, the toilet. This guy, um, you know, he's not exactly like a toilet, but he's, he's not a great guy. Daniel, on the other hand, so the people she goes and stays with are Daniel and Edna. So Daniel, um, interestingly, Daniel means God is my judge. It comes from din, the Hebrew word din. So this idea of being judged is so important. He, this Dan, love this guy, love this guy, but he has a very, very heavy heart. It seems to me like he's done some good processing. Seems like he's gotten over some of the tragedies, some of the dark, dark secrets that everybody in that house is harboring. Um, he seems less like he needs to keep it a secret. And, and and there is this idea of him being judged, but also importantly, this uh, Daniel in the Bible was taken by um, Nebuchadnezzar and kept in Babylon, but was always faithful to the king of the Jewish people. And it was a real hero. And you know, you picture him with lions and he's a very positive um, presence in the Bible. Interestingly, I was suspicious of this guy until the very end. And again, I think like with the father, I think we're justified in our suspicions 
we're not justified in terms of what happens necessarily, but we are justified because Claire Keegan is setting up some very suspicious situations. And then lastly, Edna means um, like renewer or rejuvenator um, and, and delight. And it's so interesting to me because she really is that person. I um, mentioned another book that had that another Irish novel. Oh, The All of It. Couldn't remember it until just now. Their cars are important in The All of It. Check out the Fox page if you want to uh, listen to the lecture on the all of it. But the woman's name in that is also Edna. And in that case, she is also the same sort of character, this like rejuvenator and, and this, this source of renewal and this source of delight. So I, the names are very, very important. Lastly, their, their last name is Kinsella. Um, in the beginning, I was like kin seller, like a seller of your kin, um, meaning family, like somebody who might sell family. I think it contributed to my sense of like, uh oh, I don't know if this poor girl is in good hands. Uh, but it also turns out that it means proud. It doesn't mean seller of your family. So um, thank you very much for listening to part one. Uh, tune in to parts two and three to learn even more about this absolute gem of a novel. <laughs>